like Rudy said, my name is Adam. Um, it is a privilege to be here this morning. Um, you guys have been so welcoming so far, and it's been such a treat. Even uh, I rolled up, and the guy playing drums, Thomas, him and I knew each other from Saskatoon. Uh, I grew up in Saskatoon, and lo and behold, here he is in Squamish years later. Uh, such a sweet privilege to be able to have a familiar face here. Uh, but both me and my wife, Jess, are just yeah, ecstatic to be here, to have the opportunity to, um, to serve you guys. It's sweet to be able to, to plug into a church here and um, bring the word this morning. Uh, like Rudy said, yeah, I'm part of Northview Church, part of the Immerse program, um, halfway through this Masters of Divinity program. Uh, some of my peers and um, classmates have been out here, I think, in the past couple months. Uh, both Luke Friesen and Levi Friesen preached uh, back in the fall time, I think. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm excited to be here. Uh, one thing that you need to know about me, that I, I love movies. Um, I love just the, the stories that they contain. I love just the character arcs and all the different things that are comprised in movies. And, and one movie in particular that, that really stands out to me um, is, is The Matrix. And if you're unfamiliar with that movie, it came out in the late 1990s, uh, 1999, so like right before the turn of the millennia. And this movie was really focused on uh, this dystopian future in which machines had kind of taken over um, the world. And so maybe this is probably the reason why they were worried about this in like 1999. That's why a movie came out about it, because like 2000 was right around the corner, and they were afraid that um, everything was just going to break down with computers. But um, you don't need to know too much about the movie, but the main thing that you do need to know is there's this main character named Neo. And at one point during the movie, Neo has a choice before him. He can take a, a red pill or a blue pill. And it's not necessarily the pill that matters, it's, it's what the choice represented. The, the red pill, it meant that he was going to have his eyes open to the true reality that, was, that these machines had taken over. His eyes were going to be open to this unsettling reality, but it was the true reality which he was going to have his eyes open to. Or there was the blue pill, and he could kind of remain in his his mundane, content, ignorant life of just being like, okay, this is how it is. Uh, it's this simulated experience that he's going through. So he, he has a decision on his hands. Well, do I take the red pill and, and open my eyes to what is before me and the actual reality of what's happening? Or do I stay ignorant in my content life of doing computer programming stuff? And for us, we look at this movie and we think, hey, what, what an easy choice to make. Like, yeah, you, you take the red pill. Like, you have your eyes open to the true reality of what's actually happening. It may be unsettling. Like, hey, no, there's, there's machines that have taken over the world, but I'm going to do my best to try and save it. As opposed to taking this blue pill of, okay, I, like, let's just stay in ignorant bliss. And so we think, okay, that's such an easy choice. But when we think about the Christian life, we, we have had our eyes open to the gospel reality of, like, what is the true reality about what we know to be true? And yet, we continually go back to this blue pill of choosing to, no, I'm going to ignore that reality. I'm going to continue to live in my sin. I'm going to continue to not live a life of obedience to God. And so that, today, that's where we're going to be. We're going to be looking at what does it actually look like to live for God, to make that choice, to take that one particular choice of, of living for God and not the flesh. Um, we're going to be in 1 Peter 4 today. I know it's a little bit of a departure from where you guys have been at. Um, through the Sermon on the Mount in the book of Matthew, but um, I think this is a great text for us. Uh, so 1 Peter 4 is where we're going to be at. And you're like, okay, we're, we're jumping right into to 1 Peter 4. Um, that's almost halfway through the book already. And so why, why are we going through the book of, of 1 Peter? I think um, 
it's important for us to know that it's, such a, it's so related to our current context and where we're, we're living at. Of how do we actually live in a world in which we don't actually belong to you? Like the Bible refers to us as, as exiles and sojourners and strangers in this land. So how, how do we live in that reality? But also how do we live in the reality of knowing that like, we are ambassadors for Christ? We, we get our marching orders from Jesus and, and understand, okay, we, we serve his kingdom, but we live in a, in a different one. And so that's what this, this book of First Peter addresses. And I think, it's, I think it's beautifully summed up in First Peter 2, 11 through 12, um, before we get into uh, chapter 4. So First Peter 2, 11 through 12 says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which, warge, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct amongst the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. All that to say is that that God cares about how we live. The way that we live actually matters. Um, So so diving into chapter 4, a reminder, this is the the big idea, live, live for God and not the flesh. And so how do, how do we actually accomplish that? We, we do that by leaving our sinful passions behind. We do that by bracing for the backlash. And finally, we do that by holding to the hope of the gospel. So th- those are the three points today. Point number one being, leave your sinful passions behind. Uh, so 1 Peter 4, 1 says this, So since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. And so that we get this first um, command or action that Peter has given us. He says, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Having the, having the same sort of resolve well, as, who, as Jesus himself, who suffered. And we're okay, well, why, why did Jesus suffer? Um, there's, there's multiple passages within 1 Peter 3 that, that talk about this. It says that, for Christ also suffered once for sins, he himself being the, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he may bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. And then 1 Peter 2.24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. And so we have this reminder that we too are supposed to have this same resolve, this same mindset that that of Jesus, who he himself suffered. In his desire to live a righteous life, he suffered for our unrighteousness. And then we get to this interesting line in, at the end of verse 1 that says that he, whoever, has ceased, uh, whoever has suffered has ceased from sin. And you read that and it's kind of like, well, does that just mean like any general suffering that we go through in our, in our daily life? Is that, is that what he's talking about? Like, as long as you're suffering, you're, you're, not, you're free from sin. Um, that's not quite what Peter means. There's a lot of debate about what this particular verse means actually means, but it, it, understanding the context is really important. Um, so in First Peter 3.17, when he's talking about suffering, he's talking about suffering for the sake of doing good things, for being obedient to Jesus. It says, for it is better to suffer, it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. So it, it's better to suffer than to sin is basically what Peter is getting at. And so there's a lot of hot debate about what, what does that verse actually mean, and, and I think it's best summed up in saying that um, it means that those who suffer unjustly because of their faith in Christ have demonstrated that they are willing to be done with sin by choosing obedience, even if it means suffering. Um, Thomas Schreiner is another biblical commentator, and he says this. 
It says, the commitment to suffer reveals a passion for a new way of life. A life that is not yet perfect, but is remarkably different from the lives of unbelievers. I think that's such a, a, a stark reminder that we are supposed to live differently as Christians. That it may actually bring suffering because we're choosing to live a godly life, but that we are supposed to have the same mindset and the same resolve of, of Jesus himself. And then we get to verse 2, and it, it seems like there is a little bit of an option here that we have. It talks about living the rest of your life, um, not as someone that gives into your human passions or desires, but that you're living for the will of God. And so while it seems that we have a choice, of that the call is actually quite clear as Christians. Like You're supposed to depart from that. No longer living in that, in that mindset of that lifestyle of, of, of those desires. And like Peter, Peter's not the only one that talks about that within the Bible. Paul is also very adamant about, about sin and our, and our need to dispense from our sinful ways. Um, in Romans 8.13, Paul, Paul says this. He says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Um, this particular verse was, was used by John Owen. Uh, he wrote a book called The Mortification of Sin. He's a 16, uh, 16, he lived in the 1600s. Uh, he's a theologian. But he, he summed it up this way. He said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. What a, what a stark thing to say, though. Like, be, are we actively killing sin? Do we have the desire to, to dispense from our human passions? the things that are so enticing sometimes, do we actually have that desire to kill sin? Because Peter says in verse 3, he says, the time that is past suffices. He's saying that your old lifestyle, the things that you have chosen to do, the things that you were once a part of as, as a sinner prior to coming to know Jesus, that lifestyle needs to be passe. Like you had, you had the free trial, you had the opportunity to, to indulge in those things. That free trial is over though. That seven week free trial, however long you lived in your sin, that free trial is over because now you have received like the full, the full package in Christ. Like you have the full subscription of an abundant life in Jesus. No longer this, this seven week trial, but the seven day trial, but you have the, the full package of an abundant life and flourishing life by knowing Christ. There's no need to go back. Like, why would you, like, don't let that subscription just keep rolling through and you're paying for it week and week again. But, but Peter lists these sins of sensuality and, and, and drunkenness and all, all sorts of debauchery. And when we see that, he, he was talking to a particular context and saying that these were often like state-sanctioned parties. Feasting was like the norm. In, in the Roman Empire, just going out, indulging in, in all sorts of food and drink and wine and sex. Like, that, that was the norm. So, you, like, if you think about if we were to have any sort of, like, civic holiday, whether it be um, July 1st, Canada Day, any sort of, like, holiday, like, that would have been the norm. Just, like, feasts and festivals. But just think about that. If you were to walk through, I think this is the main downtown street, and you'd see all the hoopla. Everyone's jumping from bar to bar to bar, and you're joining in with them. It's that same sort of enticement away and to do these things. And so he's saying, like, that way of living needs to be in the past. And you're like, hey, Adam, I understand. Like, that, that doesn't really happen anymore. Like, we don't have this, those same sort of enticements of, like, hey, this is a Canada-based party that we're about to have. Like, it's not a, a civic-based party in which was super enticing. 
And I'd be like, yeah, you're right. Like, it, we don't have that sort of stuff anymore. I'd say we have it a lot harder. That sort of stuff arrives at our doorstep. It's in our house. You pull out your phone, you have access to all sorts of pornography on your phone. You can order alcohol to your doorstep if you want. Like, during the pandemic, that was so easy. People could have all sorts of wine and, and, and liquor right to their doorstep. And so we think, okay, like, this doesn't apply to us, but these, these sins have been bad all time. Like, it's not just in the first century, but it's also in the 21st century, where we have these lists of things that people, like ourselves, are, are so easy, easily succumbed by. And so we need to think, do we, do we have the conviction of, of verse 3, that we, that we look to ourselves and we think, that, that time has passed. Like, the, the time of, of being a sinner, that, like, a, that suffice. Like, I'm done with it. It's, it's in the rear view. Like, do, do we have that conviction of verse 3 that's saying that this, is, this time has passed? Like, do we, do we look at sin with, with seriousness in our life? In the, book of, in the book of Mark and some of the other Gospels, it talks about, like, it would be better to chop off your arm or chop off your foot or gouge out your eye than to enter into hell. It'd be way better to do those things, to rid yourself of any opportunity to sin than to actually live a life that would lead to eternal punishment. Do we, do we look at sin that same way? Do we have that same conviction about sin in our own life? Do we understand that the time for our sinful passions is over? Or do we, do we leave the door open? Do we allow those things to, to call back at us, whisper in our ears, of like, oh, this is actually pretty good? Or have we close the door on it? So I, I, sin, is, sin is so enticing. Like it, obviously, it's pleasurable because if it wasn't, we wouldn't do it. And yet, when we continually sin, we allow ourselves to be swindled by it. And we, can't, we get numbed by it. And, and we re- repeatedly go back to it because it's comfortable. And you're like, no, that's not me. I would never do that. Um, it's, I think it's a myth, but like a lot of people will talk about when you put a frog in boiling water, it's going to jump out. And we, we too think ourselves, okay, like, yeah, anything that's dangerous or bad or sinful, okay, I don't want to be a part of that. Yet it also talks about when you put a frog in like lukewarm water and you start to turn up the temperature a little bit, it'll just boil itself to death. And I think sometimes that is our disposition is that we're like, okay, this is kind of comfortable. It's not too hot. It's not bad. It's not terrible. Just a little sin. Just a little bit of pornography. A little bit of drunkenness. A little bit of lying. A little bit of stealing. Whatever it is, whatever you feel convicted by, we just allow ourselves to to get comfortable in it. And our hearts will, will justify So what do we do with this? We actually need to, to do something about this. And, and the only thing that we can do is to, is to repent, is to confess. I think it is so important that we, we get in this practice and, and action of, of repenting and confessing. Because like, repenting actually means to like, make a turn, to, to, to leave our sinful passions behind and actually to confess. First like, John talks about if we, are, if we come to the Lord Asking for forgiveness, he's faithful and just to forgive us of all of our sins and unrighteousness and to cleanse us. And the book of James talks about us confessing to our brothers and sisters in Christ. And I think that is so important for us to, to think about. Like, do, do we have that attitude about the sin in our life? Are, are we done with it? Are we ready to move on? Do we, do we see it as passe? 
Are we willing to take that same mindset and same resolve of thinking, okay, maybe this is going to be hard. This is going to be an uphill climb. Like, it's going to be like climbing the chief. But a lot of us think that, like, it would much be easier to go down the chief, but, like, living a life of obedience and righteousness is an uphill climb. Are we willing to do so? Are we willing to leave our sinful passions behind to repent, to be convicted of where we need to be convicted by the Spirit and confessing those things? first to God, but also to other people. It is, it is so valuable for us. If we're going to live for God and not for our flesh, we need to actually leave those things behind. It actually means to turn. It means to make that, that daily choice. Maybe it's on Mondays when, when you come pray with Jeremy. And it's a time of confession to you. So I, I urge us, I encourage us to be people that, to leave our, our sinful passions behind. To actually live for God. To say, this is, this is, Something that I used to do, but no longer. I want to live the rest of my life for God, in the will of God. And so that, that seems easy. That seems really, or it can seem easy. And that's something that we desire, but it's hard. And so we need to be empowered by the Spirit to do so. To actually leave our sinful passions behind. Because if we do so, we are living for God. But in that, we're going we're gonna to face opposition. We're going to face challenges. Um, so we need, we need to brace for backlash. That's what he's getting at in, in um, verses 4 and onward. Um, so point two, brace for the backlash. Peter says, With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. And they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. People are always shocked, I think, when you start to go against the grain. Like if you are in any sort of event and you, you leave, the event is over, you walk out the doors, like you have a whole mass of people. Like even if we left here after church, people are going out for lunch. You're like, oh man, I left my Bible. Having to come back and go counter, counter to the grain, people are like, oh, why is this person doing that? Especially like large, like if you're at a concert and you're doing that and masses of people are flooding through the exits and you're trying to go against the other way. People start to be like, why is this person doing this? Like, they, they act surprised. And then as you push more and more through that, people are going to be like, what is this person doing? Like, they get upset. They get peeved that you were doing this. And this, is a, this is the image that Peter is trying to convey to us, is that like, there will be surprise sometimes because you're, you're opting to not do the things that you used to anymore. This is, especially for new believers, when you, when you choose to live a life of obedience and to choose to follow Jesus, there's going to be questions of like, why, why do you live this way? Um, I, I help serve at our young adults program at Northview. Um, and in, in the month of June, we typically do a, um, a camping trip with all of our young adults. So we go down to Asoyas uh, for the weekend. Um, typically, we have the whole site rented. Uh, but this year, um, there was a few people that had rented earlier, and they had their RV set up. Um, and so my wife, Jess, and a few of other campers, we were kind of positioned next to these RVs, but over the course of the weekend, we, ha- we had an opportunity to, to talk to the people, our neighbors. And they were, they were just floored by our group. They were, they were shocked that a group of 150 young adults were not just like raging over the weekend. That we were there, we, like, we were very respectable, kind, willing to talk to them. Like they, they just couldn't, they didn't have a framework for it. And so it's, it's nice when people have that sort of reaction and they're like curious and they're asking us questions about our church. And so that, that's the surprise part. But I, I think there's often times in which people will push back on you. Of, oh, oh, you're so narrow-minded. 
Like, why are you so judgmental? And it's in those moments that are really difficult. Um, in my, before coming out to BCI, I was in Saskatchewan. I worked at the university for a little while. Um, but I, I worked in, in uh, College of Agriculture. And just the opportunity to work with some of my coworkers was challenging because they had a lot of pushback for me. Of like, why do you believe these certain things about marriage or abortion or even how you spend your time or your money? You're like, like, why do you like? Why do you want to get married? Like, what? Like, just live common law. Like all these different questions and pushback, and it was it was hard because I was like, I'm trying to take a stand here, but I also don't want to be. Uh, really, like, I don't want to butt heads with these people. Like, I want to, I want to show how to live graciously with them. And I think it's challenging because sometimes people just will malign you and, and will slander you just for the sake of being a Christian. Nothing that you say, nothing that you do. Like, we're promised that we will be hated because the world first hated Christ. Um, I heard a story um, recently about, what well, I think it had, this happened a long time ago, but uh, Billy Graham, uh, really famous evangelist. He was, he was golfing with, with the president and these two golf pros at one point. Um, and so the group of four, they went out and these two golf pros um, just were just so upset. Like the one guy, he just started cursing out Billy Graham and it just was like, could not stand him. And so the other golf pro was like, oh man, like Billy must have been like pretty rough on you out there. And he's like, no, like he didn't share anything about religion with me. I just had a bad round. But I think it's just because of, of Billy's perception and his, his identity of who he was, what he stood for, just brought this, this anticipation of someone just not liking him because of who he was, because of what he stood for, because of his identity in Christ. And so it's hard when we feel that pressure, that external pressure, when people are coming up against us and, and saying, why do you live this way? But Peter, Peter offers this one reminder for us in verse 4. He says, don't worry, they, they will give an account as well. They will give an account to the one that is, is ready to give, to judge the living and the dead. So even though some of us, will, will, we will give an account to the people around us, like, hey, why do you, Rudy, why do you live this way? Bill, why do you, why, Bob, why do you live this way? Nick, why do you live this way? People, people will give and ask you to give an account here on earth, but there, there is a reminder for all of us that we will all one day give a heavenly account. And Peter's saying that's likewise for the people like ourselves, but it's also for people that oppose us, that have challenge for us. And so he's giving us hope. He's saying that let God take care of what he needs to take care of. It frees us up to not have to be like, oh man, I really just got to stick it to this person. It allows us to be gracious with them, to speak kindly to them, to point them to the truth. It, what good does it do to always push back and push back? Like, I think there's, there's moments to share and, and share the truth and, and speak kindly and winsomely to people, but we need to be reminded and, and hopeful of the fact that everyone will stand before Jesus one day. We will all give an account, and he will judge us. Because there will be justice that is served one day. And so are, are, we, are we ready to face opposition? Are we ready for the backlash when we start to go against the grain? Are we ready when people malign us and ask questions? 
Have you braced for the fact that actually living righteously, living for God, living an obedient life is going to come at a cost sometimes? Like that's part of the unsettling reality. If you talk about Neo t- choosing to take the red pill of like, hey, this is, this is the reality that I'm stepping into. Have, have we braced for that? You guys have, have walked through the last couple of weeks, months, or maybe the last month, a Sermon on the Mount. What does it look like to live a flourishing life, the good life? And so we hear taglines like that, okay, the Christian life is the good life, but we think that it is a little bit different. Sometimes it's easy for us to think it it comes with all the perks. It comes without difficulty. It comes without challenge. It comes without opposition. It comes without suffering. But it is clear within this passage that we are supposed to brace for that. We're supposed to brace for people opposing us. We're supposed to brace for suffering, but that we can hold strong because we know that Christ has done so likewise. So finally, to, I think to tie it all together, how, like how do we actually make it through this? We need to hold to the hope of the gospel. And all that we do, we need to hold to the hope of the gospel. Um, so in verse 6, this is how Peter, he concludes uh, this section. He says, For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way that God does. And so this is another somewhat confusing section that Peter has written here. Like, what does it actually mean to, to preach the gospel to that, those that are dead? Like, are, are we going to, like, the local cemetery and just, like, preaching to the, the tombstones? No, I, it's, it's, it's key for us to understand that he's saying that um, preaching to the people that you're, was preaching to people that now are dead. So when the gospel was preached to them, they were alive, but now they are dead. So that is what he means by that. He's saying that not preaching to people that are, that are dead or spiritually dead, but people that when they were alive, they had the opportunity to hear the gospel. When they were alive, they had a response. They had an ability to respond and hear it and live as such. Um, so why, why does Peter say this? Um, I think it's because there's always going to be... Um, there's always going to be criticism about the Christian life. Like I said, there's always going to be questions about what happens. Like, why do, you, why do you live this way? Why do you no longer partake in these things? But at the end of the day, I think the criticism comes because people look at us and say, okay, you're following Jesus, you're living an obedient life. But at the end of the day, your end is the same as mine. We both die. Like, the outside world looks at us, okay, like our, our end point is death. So, like, what, why are you ridding yourself of having the opportunity to have any sort of fun in your life? But we need to understand that there is life beyond the grave. That there is hope beyond our physical life. That whatever we're going through right now, whatever hardship or difficulty or suffering or opposition that we're facing, that this is not the end. Like when we die, it's not the end. That there is, that there is more to this life. Um, and I think it's important that we see that the gospel provides us hope for now, but also for the future. We, we, are, we have promises throughout all of Scripture. Uh, there's an inheritance to come, but there's also promises in which we can hold to now. That we've been justified here and now, that we can walk in the Spirit here and now. That we don't need to continually feed our, our, our fleshly desires, but that we can actually walk in the Spirit. That we can be empowered by the Spirit to do so. Um, and that this future hope, uh, this, this song that we sang, that, like, we're talking about dwelling with God. We can do that now, but there's, there's, there will be a day in which we can dwell with God for eternity. 
without any pain or suffering or tears? Is that something that we look forward to? Is that hope that we long for, that we are so excited for? And I, and I, and I believe that Peter knew this super well because he, he had to live it out. Um, Peter, if you guys know, like obviously is, is one of Jesus' disciples during his earthly ministry. Um, walked very closely with Jesus, had the opportunity to, to know him super well, was in part of the inner three. And yet there's a point within Mark 8 um, in which Peter, uh, he rebukes Jesus. He like professes that he is the Christ, but then he also, he, he rebukes Jesus. And this is what it says in Mark 8. Uh, and calling the crowd, uh, and he began to teach them, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter clearly here has chosen to, to live for his desires. He had desires for what Jesus was supposed to come and accomplish. And this is what we see at the beginning of this, of, of chapter 4, of saying, like, you either live for your human passions and desires, or you live for the will of God. And so he, he's challenging this. Jesus actually challenges him in this in his own life of, like, you do not have the things of God in mind. You have your own personal desires. And yet we see what gospel transformation actually can mean for somebody. If you go to, to Acts 5, uh, it's an account of, um, a lot of the apostles um, are preaching and they get thrown in jail. Um, the Lord allows them to escape, unbeknownst to the, the people that are guarding the, the, um, the jail. And yet, Peter and his fellow apostles, they continue to preach the gospel. Like, their desire is to continually preach the gospel, because that's what they've been called to do. He's like, I, I must continue to preach the gospel. Like he, he doesn't care what happens to him. He doesn't care what hardship may f- come to him. He does not care what the future holds. He's like, this is, this is what I've set out to do, that I'm going to come and preach the gospel. Um, I, I think it's so unique that those are the things that they do. And not only that, but they, they count it worthy of suffering. Um, to live a Christian lifestyle 
here in Canada, but on the rest of the world. Like, it's not going to become any easier. So are, are we going to have that same mindset? Are we going to take the same resolve of Jesus and actually set forth to do so? May we actually have that commitment to actually realize what it looks like to live for God and not the flesh. Let me pray for us.